Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hello again, everybody. This is Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. I'm Don Payne. Glad you have joined us. Many of you will be familiar with the Enigma Code that the Nazis used during World War II, and that Enigma Code has been the subject of numerous documentaries and movies. One of the things that, uh, one of the factors that the Allies found so perplexing about the Enigma Code was not only its complexity, but the fact that it kept changing. And that, in a way, is a pretty good metaphor for what many of us experience today with trying to engage a culture or cultures that continually change in all their complexity, but engage them from the vantage point of the, uh, the, the universals, the universal truths of the Christian faith. So today we're really privileged to have a couple of astute colleagues to join us and help us through this, Dr. Doug Groteis and Dr. Ike Shepherdson. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Hey, thanks for having me. Hello, thank you. Uh, many of you will know Doug's name. He's been on the faculty here since, I think, 1993, spoken and written widely, and many of you may be uh, familiar with one or more of his books, but particularly his, I guess you'd call it your magnum opus, Doug, right? Christian Apologetics? Yes, I think so. And that is now, uh, a second edition of that is in the works, hopefully to come out sometime next year. Uh, Ike Shepherdson uh, has been on our adjunct faculty for... Uh, two or three years now, I think, teaches with Doug in the arena of apolog- apologetics and ethics. Uh, Ike is a published author and is what we might call tri-vocational, I think. Is that, is that fair to say? That's fair. It's <laughs> about three or, three or four of them now. Yeah, yeah. In addition to serving uh, on our adjunct faculty here and a very esteemed colleague in that role, uh, Ike also works as, what is it, a software engineer? Uh, software sales. Software sales. I can talk about it but I can't build it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and also is on the pastoral staff of a local congregation. So we're really, really glad that both Ike and Doug can join us to help us think through what it means to engage uh, our culture apologetically for the Christian faith and, and engage uh, our culture in ministry in general uh, with the... Uh, the historic faith once delivered to the saints. So, gentlemen, get us out of the gate here. As you think about culture, what has, particularly the culture the culture or cultures that we inhabit here in the U.S. or in the Western world, what are some of the, the changes? What, what has changed? What has stayed the same through some of these cultural shifts of the past few decades? Well, I can start, I think, with some things that have stayed the same, and maybe I can speak to changes the human condition is the same we are made in god's image and likeness but we are fallen and we need redemption from god we cannot find it in ourselves and so cultures express that createdness and that fallenness in different ways but they're constants of the human situation and as we want to speak the truth and love to our generation we can count on that so when we explain what sin is, that it's a radical offense to a holy God. We speak of repentance unto life and following Jesus. We have to do a lot of work to make that understandable to people because they might 
misconstrue what we're saying because of the words or because of the tone. But we know that the gospel is still the same, that God does not change, and our need for grace through the work of Christ does not change. So I take that to be very encouraging in my role as a Christian apologist and a witness to Christ. I appreciate what you said, Doug, about those realities being expressed differently or iterated somewhat differently over time in cultures. Mm-hmm. They, but go ahead. Yeah, why don't I let Ike speak to that? Yeah, wh- what I was going to say is that I've seen a lot of changes in the cognitive and experiential distance uh, that people have with historic Christian faith, especially in the city. That's my context in ministry is, is serving a church in Denver, right by the University of Denver area. And people, I think in my parents' generation, had some facility or understanding of what Christianity was. Even if they hadn't read the Bible, they had a general respect for it. And even if they didn't believe in Jesus, they knew that somehow Jesus was important. But in my generation, and in the generation of the young people that attend my church and that we try to reach, they simply don't have that same experience of Christianity being something that is, is meaningful, even if they don't participate in it. Yeah, it's not even a cultural touch point for them, right? That's right. Is that if, fair if, to say? If I say, you know, the Bible says this, that that's I might as well be saying, you know, the Quran says some interesting things, or Steve Jobs said something that was profound while he was alive. Yeah, just another quote. Yeah, and, and maybe it's wise, and maybe it's perfectly relevant for me, but it, there's no there's no— there's nothing that goes from person to person to show this is meaningful for all of us. And I think that's especially the case when we start using jargon, even something like sin or repentance. These don't mean the same things to to this generation as they have in the past. What kind of ministry work, if I can put it that, that crassly, what kind of ministry work does that create for us that is more generationally novel, perhaps, and one of the, but before you answer that, one of the things I appreciate about you two men is that you're, while you're both uh, in the lane of philosophy and apologetics and cultural engagement, you're from two different generations and, as far as I know, two different Christian traditions, two different denominational backgrounds. And so I love the variety that you bring to this conversation. But um, go, go ahead with that if you haven't forgotten what I, what I asked. I have. <laughs> no, I know exactly what you're getting at. <laughs> What it means, and this is exactly what apologetics tries to do, it means that we need an act of translation between what the historic Christian faith proclaims and the lexicon that the culture is ready to use in interpreting it. And that just means that we need to help people to understand what, what we mean when we say things. In, in apologetic preaching, it means that when you say something that's a loaded term theologically, you explain what it means in culturally relevant language. Uh, you say, if I'm going to say sin, I have to say, well, you have to understand that that God is holy, and he has a law, and it's possible to break that law. It's possible to miss the mark of what God's perfection is, to transgress a, a barrier, a boundary that you're not supposed to go outside of. And if we've done that, then that alienates us from God. It makes us strangers when we should be friends. This kind of translation project can help people mm-hmm. to understand just what it is that Christians proclaim. Right. And then also we can use examples from literature or perhaps from films or 
poems or something like that, once we have defined what we mean, we can say, now here's a illustration of this theme. And of course, scripture has so many imaginative elements like the parables and so on. And people relate to stories, true stories, fictional stories. Of course, the scripture is the ultimate narrative, the ultimate story of God's revelation and redemption. But that's where we try to find common ground. We need to define who God is, what the gospel is, and then what our need is for the gospel. And I think explaining sin is a challenging one today because of many things. Relativism, for one thing. There really is no absolute right and wrong. And then another would be a kind of Eastern influence spirituality where there really is no sin against God. There might be a little bad karma here and there. But the answer is not to look outside of ourselves to God, but to go inside and to find this inner God, this higher level of consciousness. So even before we defend something like uh, the reliability of the Bible or the deity of Jesus, we have to really be very careful to explain our terms and then pick examples that will help illustrate those terms. So there's a lot of backfill, in a sense, that has to be done. Yeah, yeah. right. Ike, I'm interested in, in what you have experienced as a pastor even more broadly uh, as you've uh, plowed this field, so to speak, in, in a culture that has changed pretty dramatically in, in terms of what its touch points are, what, it, what its knowledge base is. What are some of the other challenges and, and maybe even the exciting opportunities that you have experienced pastorally? Yeah, the opportunity is that people are still interested in the spiritual life. Even if they don't have a respect for traditional institutions like the church, they still know that there's something that's important that happens that's deeper than the meeting of our physical needs or playing hard on the weekend or making lots of money. They know that there's something that's missing. And so there's an, there's an, an incredible opportunity to connect with that base human desire for transcendence. Uh, the challenge is when you go with a message of come to church on Sunday— come to my hope group that meets in my house, there's not that same respect for those rhythmic kinds of institutions that Christians have found so meaningful over the millennia. Mm-hmm. That could be taken to suggest some pretty dramatic shifts in the way we envision church, or at least the, the, some of the rhythms and the, the practices of church. And for, for those of us who have a, a deep respect for the historical anchor points of, of the church and its place in the world, that can be a stretch. That's exactly right. And what that means is that, in, in, and sorry to speak over you, Doug, to, what that means in training the saints, it's the, the impetus is all the more there to help them to become ambassadors so that when uh, church isn't necessarily about trying to gather as many lost sheep as possible, although, gosh, we, we're open to that and we love that, but it's about training people to be shepherds after God's own heart, to be ambassadors for the gospel so that they can go out and, and have, have touch points with people to bring the light of the gospel with them everywhere that they go. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And I think the church itself is an apologetic. The fact that it exists at all is because of the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and we bear witness to that. But also, a lot of people, not not just younger people, but I think especially those maybe under 35, are looking for some kind of sacred rhythm in their life. And that's exactly what the church provides in terms of worship and prayer and so on. There's an article in the New York Times recently about consultants who are trying to add spiritual rituals to the business world because people feel a need Mm -hmm. to find the sacred in their everyday life. And from what I saw in the article, there was really nothing of Christian content there. But we can say, uh, here is a sacred story that happens to be true and rational and meaningful. And these are ways that Christians have embodied this by having and gathering and praying and hearing the scripture taught by being accountable to one another and so on. So that embodied story is significant. It's not just another story. It's a story with rational support. There's good reason to believe that God created the world. He brought the being uh, the world into being, that he designed the world and so on. And, and that's what we teach in our classes at Denver Seminary is that we do have a reason for the hope with us, that is within us, but there's always that meaning dimension. You've got to speak to meaning and truth, because people can find some things deeply meaningful that are not true. So we need to tell a good and compelling story, but say that this connects with reality, that God, in fact, came to Earth in space-time history in Jesus Christ, he he died to atone for the sins of the world, and so on. And of course, we're not going to use words like atone when we're talking to unbelievers. We'll have to illustrate that and, and talk about what it means to be reconciled to God and to one another and what the sacrifice of Christ means. So that work of translation and of uh, transposition, as C.S. Lewis put it, needs to go on. Yeah, when you you make me think of a couple of things, Doug. When we use the word atone in our current culture, they'll think we're making a musical reference of uh, of some sort. Um, right. But on a more, <laughs> yes, on, right. If, you, if you get the joke, uh, but on a more seri- it took on, me a minute. yeah, it took you a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but on a on a more serious note, you also remind me of uh, a really interesting book from some years ago by Curtis Chang called "Engaging Unbelief." Uh, Chang was for some years, the director of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Harvard. And I think this may have been his published master's thesis, but he did a really fascinating overview of uh, Augustine's City of God and of Thomas Aquinas' Contra Gentiles um, against the Gentiles. And he argued that in both of those works, separated by several hundred years from each other, the same apologetic missional strategy was being employed. Uh, in both cases, Chang argues, they were arguing that the narrative of the gospel uh, superseded and was truer and more compelling than the prevailing cultural narrative. Uh, Augustine arguing against Roman culture and uh, Aquinas arguing against the uh, Islamic um, Aristotelianism of his day. And they were making a gospel apologetic that was narratival based against the prevailing cultural narratives. Yeah, and I have, right. I have an example of that, and that's in our culture today. You see people 
who the ultimate sin is racism or bigotry or misogyny or homophobia. And to atone for that, you need to consistently virtue signal again and again through social media, through saying the right things publicly. You have to give to the right place and make sure people see you do it. And it's atoning for those sins over and over and over. Whereas in the Christian worldview, we, we find ourselves in this wretched place of being broken and unable to fix both ourselves and the world. And once for all, Christ provides atonement for us. Stanford. Right. I think yeah. people today are, are dealing with a sense of shame and guilt and confusion. And Ike is right that apart from Christ, it's futile. I mean, we need to make amends for things. We need to mend our ways in a variety of contexts. But the ultimate issue is how can we find forgiveness and new life? And the book of Hebrews says over and over that the sacrifices in the the Old Testament system uh, illustrated what was to come, but they could not take away sin. Only the sacrifice of Christ can redeem us from sin uh, by providing what we could never provide for taking our place and bearing our punishment and so on, and then giving us his righteousness. I think people are thinking a lot about guilt, and they won't use this word, but probably atonement. But mm -hmm. it's a self kind of atonement, or it's a superficial atonement that is not efficacious. The, the blood of Christ is efficacious for time and eternity. Well, this is, uh, I, I had not intended our conversation to, to take this direction, but I, I think it's an important one because with everything going on uh, in the, the racially charged um, culture of the current day, and with, with the injustices, the atrocities, the travesties that, um, m you know, must not be diluted or ignored, I think you're putting your finger on something really uh, sensitive, and that, that is that when, when, we, when you try to bring the gospel into these conversations, uh, and, and many Christians are really struggling to do that very thing right now. What 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 does it mean? What does the gospel mean in these conversations? And what you're highlighting, Doug, or both of you actually, is that we're becoming aware of of guilt and shame where there is that it, there is no place to put it. It, yes. it becomes the way it's being um, popularized, if I can put it that way, is is in the form of a, a sort of a vortex, a moral vortex that has no bottom to it. And so there is no final atonement. Um, and where people will often, it seems to me, tend to polarize the conversation is either to trivialize the injustices so that we don't feel as badly about them or to wallow in them such that there is no end to... Um, uh, to the conversation, and and the gospel does give us a way or a place to put even the most egregious sin. Now, of course, that and that does not in any way uh, abrogate or dilute the need for repentance, for utter right. clear ownership of evil that has been done, and yet it gives us a, a place to go where genuine atonement. And so right. maybe, you know, I'm wondering, thinking out loud here, whether 
whether we, we have the opportunity, the unique opportunity culturally to make atonement by whatever word and, and set of descriptions we use, to make that an engaging and a, an a plausible concept once again. I feel an essay coming on, Don. Do you? Okay. <laughs> Maybe a book. But okay. I'm, I'm thinking what's been said many times that Jesus came to justify sinners through his work, but not to justify sin. Yeah. So sin is sin against God and against our neighbor. And as I've been studying and writing on the atonement quite a bit in the last four or five months, I realized that one of the aspects of the atonement, it's central, is that we can be reconciled to our neighbor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul says that's a fruit of the atonement. It's not merely being reconciled to God through the mediatorial work of Jesus, but out of that comes love and reconciliation with neighbor. It's not uh, kind of a distant after effect. It's part and parcel of what Christ's atoning work is all about. And and it's wouldn't you say a metric that being reconciled to our yes. neighbor is a metric of right. a, of atonement? Right. We show our faith by our good works. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. I think even if you look at the history of what happened at the atonement, what you have is a Palestinian Jew who is looked at by his oppressors as if he was a dog mm -hmm. in the corner of one of the most abusive societies in the history of the world. And while he's nailed to a cross after a sham trial, he's mocked by the very people who he proclaims that God, God would save them. And he offers forgiveness to them from the cross uh, for the people who look down on him as this accursed minority. But in rising from the dead, he, what he promises is new life for all those who would call on his name. And this is significant, too. If you look in the book of Revelation, at, in the new heavens and the new earth, the, the tree bears healing to the nations, to the ethne of the world. That is offered through, through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as a persecuted minority suffering this, mm -hmm. this terrible injustice. Yeah, and that's that's an important theme for today. I'm thinking of Howard Thurman's little but very profound book called Jesus and the Dispossessed. He emphasizes that uh, marginal minority oppressed status of Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who emptied himself uh, and became one of us to redeem us, as you so beautifully said. Yeah, yeah. His entry into the ultimate injustice and oppression is the thing that redeems us. In some yes. some respects, yeah, and he had all the power, and I say that as as a, a white man who has privilege. Yeah. Jesus had all the power and laid it all down, and that's an example to somebody like me who oh, yeah. has influence yeah. and privilege, where I can say I have somebody to follow, laying down mm -hmm. my my resources, my influence, even to bring up the influence of other people, to say I I can be I can be less so that Christ can be more. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more room for me to to lessen myself, to empty myself, hmm. following my Savior who did the same thing. Hmm. Hmm. Right. And we have the promise that, that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. So the way of humility has been shown by Jesus, and he calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. And I think it's great we've been talking about Christ and the atonement and healing, because some people think apologetics is very abstract and maybe academic, but the way we teach it at Denver Seminary is 
very evangelistically oriented. We want to bring people to the cross of Christ as quickly as possible through apologetics. We don't view apologetics as just an academic discipline to impress other apologists and then publish these things in obscure journals that yeah. nobody reads. Yeah. Now, we need to do good academic work, and Ike and I both have doctorates and we have academic publications, but we want to take this to the streets and we want to call out to people and say, come to Christ. You have every reason to do so and no good reason not to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's come out of our conversation here today. Yeah. Doug, let me ask you a question. You're sort of the seasoned KG veteran here uh, in apologetics. And, and as you, you have... an old guy. Uh, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't exactly say that. Okay. <laughs> okay. You're my age. You know, uh, yeah, I know. I know. I know. But... <laughs> But I have yes, the mic thank here. You okay, for that so, so, <laughs> so as the as the KG veteran here in apologetics, it, you know, as you've studied and practiced it over the years, um, how, how has your thinking deepened or shifted or seasoned uh, about apologetics and apologetic strategy? Well, I think most recently I've really gotten into the work of Christ. And in theology, typically you, you talk about the person of Christ in terms of his deity, his humanity, his works of miracles, and so on. And the work of Christ is usually the cross and the atonement. And I've been rewriting or updating my Christian apologetics book, and I've gotten pretty deeply into the atonement. I'll probably have two chapters on it in the second edition. And of course, I believe this for over 40 years, and I've taught it. Uh, but when I looked at my first edition of Christian Apologetics, I realized that I had far more on the person of Christ. And I don't gainsay anything that I said there, but I really didn't have enough on the work of Christ. Okay. And what the blood of Christ achieves for us and how it works and then how to defend that apologetically against uh, challenges by heretics like Socinus and and others and so on. So... I want to go ever deeper into the work of Christ and defending what he's done and make it, making it clear to people. And then also, of course, this is not just defending an idea, it's being a Christ follower and deeply understanding and appropriating the work of grace on my behalf. And I want to challenge my students to uh, bring people to the cross and to bring themselves to the cross for strength and wisdom and blessing yeah, here, here. In, in the great work of apologetics. Indeed, indeed. Well, hey, I had a number of other questions that might give us just an excuse for another conversation. I wanted to talk about post-Christian culture and technology and politics and economics and all of that, but we'll, uh, uh, that would be going from the sublime to the ridiculous, I think, in light of where our conversation has gone. So we'll save that for another conversation. Um, but leave us, uh, each of you, maybe with a couple of uh, specific takeaways for our our typical listeners, if there is such a thing, uh, people who may not be in the world of academia, they may not be, you know, tr trained in higher level scholarship of apologetics. But what are what are two or three things you'd want typical Christian listeners to come away with from you if they're not able to take a course from you in apologetics? What do you mm -hmm. want them to hear? Let I go first on that one. I'd like to challenge Christians to read the newspaper and interpret it by the Bible. This is something that 
has, of course, uh, been a theme in, in Christian scholarship for a long time. I think Karl Barth is attributed with saying the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. Yeah. But, and maybe I'm a Luddite for saying the word newspaper <laughs> in this digital age. <laughs> yeah, you're assuming people know what that is. That's right, yeah. Uh, as you scroll your news feed. <laughs> right. But thinking biblically, and this is exactly what we teach at Denver Seminary in all disciplines— so that you're, you're able to interpret what you're reading based on theological categories, biblical categories, so that as I, see, as I see a politician behaving in a way that I find undesirable, I'm able to say, well, I, I'm, I need to make sure I, I pray for those in power, and I need to oppose pride that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and I need to offer, uh, offer uh, good reasons for the hope that I have, which is not based on this present age, but which is based on on the, the kingdom of our God in Christ. To think biblically as you're interpreting the world around you, so that we're not overcome by fear, but we actually have a message that can bring hope to everybody that we talk to. And that's exactly what apologetics is trying to do. I always think about apologetics as if there's a roadway between the the loved one that I know who is far from God and Jesus, and I want to lovingly remove the roadblocks on that roadway so that they can make their way to Jesus. If I think biblically, I can show them what the roadblock is, what it means, and show them that it's very easily removed by good arguments, by uh, by prayer and participating in Christian community, but but taking these steps towards Christ. Uh, and you have to do that by thinking biblically. It helps to interpret the world around you. And you have to understand that world around you and that's, in order to enhance right. the newspaper. That's why news you feed, have to right. scroll meaningfully uh, and, and, and good news sources. Uh, yeah. and, and even when yeah. you hear you know, news that is uh, contradictory or, or problematic and people are going back and forth about what, what's, what's fake news and what's the, what's the actual facts at hand, being able to to be wise, to be as as shrewd as as serpents, but as innocent as doves, you have to be shrewd in in receiving these things, but looking at it with with the innocence that of Christ, that is that's so pure that, that you know God's not stressed by what's happening right now. God's not stressed out by that. Of course, He's concerned. Of course, He's acting. He's moving, but He's not stressed. That's, that's because a good he, word. He understands what's mm. going on in the world, and if we can get those those theological lenses on be deep in the scriptures, then we won't be stressed and we can show people, hey, here's what this means. Mm. It means that God's redeeming the earth, yeah, that God's bringing hope again. Good word. Doug, right. what do you want to leave us with? Yeah, well, I'm encouraged that we're really living in a period that shows a renaissance in apologetics. In the last, uh, let's say, 40 years, we've seen a renaissance of Christians in philosophy and making tremendous strides there. People like Alvin Plantinga, Nicholas Wolterstorff, William Lane Craig, so many Doug others. But then, well, thank you so much. I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we've also seen a renaissance in apologetics, which is really taking good philosophy of religion and using it directly to defend the gospel and to equip people in the church. So we've seen uh, a number of ministries develop at every level. You've got something like Mama Bear Apologetics, which is apologetics for moms to help their children defend the faith. And we've got our master's degree in apologetics and ethics here at Denver Seminary. There are other programs springing up around. There are podcasts. There are radio programs. And so we're really living in the, the grand age of 
Christian apologetics in the United States, very different than, let's say, 25, 30 years ago. So there's no excuse to not develop a reason for the hope that is within you. You can go online, you can study, you can find good arguments for God's existence from science, historical arguments for the reliability of Scripture, uh, the resurrection here at Denver Seminary. We have one of the greatest scholars in the world on the reliability of the New Testament, Dr. Craig Blomberg. So my word is avail yourself of the resources avail- available and take it to the streets. Don't be bashful. Uh, have a reason for the hope that is within you and offer it with gentleness and respect and with courage in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well said, Doug. Yeah, we have a we do live in an amazingly well-resourced uh, place, mm-hmm. pl- place and time, which in light right. of some of the stress or the many downers, like Ike mentioned, um, that's a really hopeful word that the Lord has, has resourced mm-hmm. us as well as he has for right. these uh, these ministries. Gentlemen, thanks. It's been a privilege to spend some time with you. I always enjoy it. Um, want to put in a plug for the Master of Arts in Apologetics and Ethics that Doug and Ike have both uh, mentioned a few times. And check that out on our webpage, denverseminary.edu and see if uh, maybe the Lord is calling you towards some more advanced training in apologetics and ethics. Uh, I mentioned also that Doug has a second edition of Christian Apologetics forthcoming sometime in the next year or so. And you may also want to look for Ike's book, which is entitled Who's Afraid of the Unmoved Mover, published last year by Pickwick. So check that out. That was, uh, I think, a published, uh, published version of your dissertation at Toronto, was it not? That's right. Yeah, it's the dissertation I wrote uh, studying under the atheist Don Weeb. Wow. Well, what an apologetic maneuver that was. Huh? <laughs> hey, I'll mention one other thing. Of course, yeah. the, the Master of Divinity also has an apologetics concentration. And, uh, and so that's a great right. way for somebody who senses the calling towards pastoral ministry and wants to have an apologetic edge in evangelism and in mm-hmm. equipping the saints, that's a, a great option as well. Glad you thought to mention that, Ike. Thanks. Well, thanks again to all of you for spending a little bit of time with us, and we want to give a particular shout-out this week to Maritza Smith. She's a member of our production team, and she does an enormous amount of work behind the scenes to make this thing happen. So want to thank Maritza specifically this week for all she does. Krista Ebert is again on the, the boards for us and does our editing. Thanks to her and the rest of our production team and to uh, all of our uh, supporters here at Denver Seminary who do so much to make this happen. This is Engage 360, and we hope that you will take some time to maybe give us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. Communicate with us if you would like through our email address, which is podcast at denverseminary.edu. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Until next week, I'm Don Payne, and Thank you again. Take care.